hear me. Скажи мне, американец, в чем сила? А вы что, собираетесь на ней жениться? Да. Ух, красота-то какая, лепота. Таможня дает добро. Я вообще не называю меня, пожалуйста, Вероника. Кто я? Вот кто я? От русские земля, единый быть. Hi, my name's Ali, and this is the Rus Files Unite movie podcast, where we watch Russian films and films with a Russian connection. As always, I'm joined by a guest, and today, once again, my guest is Carrie. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Ali. It's nice to have you on again. Well, I'm practically your hostage with this thing, so <laughs> but I don't you have much of a choice. But you said you wanted to be on this episode, or were you just humoring me? Maybe a bit of both. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I have to support your projects in some way since I don't listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess. And this is just quicker because you're on fewer li- episodes than you'd have to listen to. Is that what this is? Maybe. Okay. Uh, at least we now know where we, we both stand <laughs> in relation to the project. Um, so... As opposed to in relation to our relationship. Yeah, yeah, that. Um, so, Carrie... For, for, for those of you who haven't listened to any of the other episodes that I'm on, I'm Ali's wife. Yes, I was just getting to, I was just getting to that point. Um, well, that's not how I was going to introduce you. Um, <laughs> um, uh, yes, for the benefit of, uh, of listeners who this is their first episode, or this is their first episode with you, Carrie, besides being my spouse, could you tell... Them a little bit more about you. You mean my connection to Russia, or or whatever? Um, I studied Russian language and literature in university. Studied Russian in Russia at the Moscow State University of the Humanities for a year, and uh, after that, I lived and worked in Russia for about five years. Cool, thank and you. And met and married Ali during that time. Yes. Somewhere in the middle of that point. So today we're watching a film that you've seen before, but mm-hmm. not one that I've seen before, but I've been putting off seeing for ages because I wanted to do it for the podcast. So, Carrie, what are we watching? Uh, L'état Giravli. Which in English is? The cranes are flying. Or the storks are flying, possibly, because Giravli is storks or cranes, right? Yeah. I've just saw on the DVD... Covers that I've seen, it's always said the cranes are flying. Oh yeah, I've never seen the storks are flying. Plus, if you if you title something the storks are flying in English, you makes it seem like it's going to be about babies or having a baby, which I don't know very much about this film. But it's I'm, definitely not about that. It's a delightful romantic comedy about fertility. No, it's not, because <laughs> those are always hilarious. 
I'm giving Ellie a horrified look because it's actually about World War Two. I did know that. I'm just attempting to be funny and apparently failing, <laughs> judging by judging by Carrie's special expression, which obviously you can't see. But never mind. Um, yes, again for listeners who who haven't uh, who haven't heard an episode Carrie's been on before. Carrie has made it sort of her tradition when she's on here to heckle me as much as she, as she can. Actually, no, probably not as much as she can. That's that's a foolish thing to say. Is that a challenge? Yeah, yeah, I knew. Because right now you're way. sitting here in your pants. And that's in the English version of the word pants, as in underwear. Thank you. Carrie, that's given listeners an image they really didn't need. You can always edit it out. I'll see what I can do. So when you're not... <laughs> right, we should get back to the film. Uh... <laughs> Do you know Lynn did an episode of the classic Schmassic in his pants? Yes. Yeah, because they didn't edit that out, but Lynn wasn't editing. So. Oh, yeah. Right, so the cranes, and probably not the storks, are flying. Mm-hmm. And it's about World War Two. Mm-hmm. Well, it's uh... set during World War Two. Okay. And when it just ends. A subtle distinction, and yeah, I know there's a relationship is central to it. Mm-hmm. It focuses a bit more on the civilian or the home front, and what some of those what those characters are going through is more important to the central story than the front lines. But and it seems like most Russian war movies or Soviet war movies about that time period, about World War Two. Focus more on the soldiers and the battles. Okay. So this one is a bit different in that way. Cool. So rightly, we should say that it stars Tatiana Samoylova and Alexei Batalov, rather than the other way around. Yes. Okay. So she's the the main character, and he's you know second main character. He's not a supporting character because he's still very important, but mm-hmm. it's not mostly about him. And you know, she's his girl from back home right right so when you first saw this was that for your course or was it just something you incidentally saw it was for one of my courses it was a class called russia in the west where we looked at different aspects of russian culture um from youth culture to politics to um economics russian music and we compared it and contrasted it with various aspects of western uh, the corresponding Western thing. So Russian music versus Western music and the different ways that composers compose things okay. or tend to compose things. So it was trying to say, well, is Russia part of Western civilization or is it part of its own thing? Okay. Um, and did you come to any conclusions? No, you could technically conclude, you could conclude that there is an Orthodox civilization that and Russia would be the largest country within that. Or you could also conclude that, yeah, Russia is part of the West. Yeah. I personally have always come to the conclusion that it's sort of uh, yes-ish, but also kind of no. Well, it's, it, that's even... Depending on who you're asking. <laughs> yeah, well, it's even a, a, an entire... I don't want maybe an entire branch of Russian philosophy where you have Russophiles... No. Slavophiles. Slavophiles, there we go. I knew I was getting the wrong word. Slavophiles who are saying Russia is its own thing and it's separate versus westernizers who are like, no, Russia is part of the West. So this is even a debate that goes on, as I understand, within Russia and has gone on 
since um, about the since 19th. Peter the Great. Really since okay, because I tend to think of it as being like a nineteenth century thing. But yeah, you know, you're right. Since Peter the Great was like, we're gonna be more like the West, and a lot of people went, oh. Well, no, that's it's just kind of like that was that split. Yeah. But then I guess some people on the westernizer side say, oh, well, if we hadn't been invaded by the Mongols, we would have been more like the West anyway, so... Oh, but this is just a <laughs> tangent that yeah. would take way too long to go into on this podcast. Right, fair enough. But that is a debate that's out there, so mm-hmm. if you've never heard of that, Google it, because that's always the best way of finding things out. And everything you read on Google <laughs> is always true. true yes and always the most important most up-to-date correct information will always be on the first page because aren't they good mm-hmm. other search engines are available um so <laughs> anyway um uh so this film's from the late 50s yep um what was going on in the late 50s in Stalin Seoul? was dead He'd been dead for a little while like a few years well, yeah, but was it 56 that he died? 53. 53. Ah, oh, why do I always get that wrong? I always remember it because it's the same year my dad was born, so... Stalin <laughs> dead, my dad alive. Well, it was <laughs> it was after the secret speech. Which was? Don't ask me the year I'm going to get it wrong again. No, no, I'm not going to ask... No, I'm asking <laughs> what the secret speech was. Obviously, it was a speech that was kind of concealed, but... It was like... The speech that everyone knew about but was called the secret speech. Because basically Stalin was like, let me throw you in the gulag for breathing wrong. Um, and especially within the arts, like a yeah. lot of artists were either threatened with or yeah. were arrested. I just don't like your face. Sorry. Sucks yeah. to be you. Yeah. So the secret speech was like, okay, we're not going to do that anymore. So there was like this breath of fresh air and hope that things would be opening up a bit more as maybe not fully freedom of speech, but you at least didn't need to be terrified if you said something or created something that the government, that that wasn't like wholly 100% exactly what the government wanted. Yeah, it was more like you'd have to be... You'd have to be like producing something that's like down with the Soviet Union! Yeah, you'd kind of know you were being subversive rather than, like, accidentally just saying something that Stalin decided was subversive because he didn't like you, or... Well, this movie has um, something subversive happen within it that's a major plot point. But it's not subversive as in it's against the government, it's just against the Soviet ideal Mm. of the way somebody should behave or act. And it just portrays that within the movie. I'll have to look out for that and see if I can correctly identify it as we're going along. Mm-hmm. Um, so this actually, this film kind of has a double tie-in with the film we've already covered on on the podcast, which was the one we did with Jenny, which was Moscow Does Not Believe in Tears. Which is an amazing movie, and you should definitely watch it if you haven't seen it already. Yes, and you should also listen to that podcast episode. <laughs> Shameless self-promotion. No, it's because Jenny was such a fantastic guest. Yes. Jenny is great. Yeah, because the first half of that film is set in the Khrushchev Thor, which is what what we've been talking about, the period of opening up somewhat. Mm -hmm. Um, We should also point point out, if we're talking about the Khrushchev Thor, if you're less well-versed in Soviet history, it kind of opened up a bit while he was 
in charge, and then when Brezhnev came along, it kind of closed back down. I mean, it didn't go back to horrific Stalinism, but it was less open than it had been. So Basically, people's hopes and how open it would be were not fulfilled. Yeah, yeah. It didn't continue on the trajectory, and it kind of went backwards a little bit as well, is the impression I've got. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, so that's the part of the tie-in. And the other part of the tie-in is that, as we've said, Alexei Batalov is is in it and is in an important role. And he plays sort of the love interest slash hero of the second half of Moscow Does Not Believe in Tears. So I think he was like a big star of the like 50s Soviet cinema. And I think he looks like Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> He is, he doesn't look exactly like Humphrey Bogart, but he is of the tall, dark, handsome, but not like classically handsome, like a Cary Grant type handsome, but like his face has a bit of character to it. Yeah, kind of brooding. Uh, yeah, yeah, brooding's a good word. Yeah. All right. So Russian Humphrey Bogart is in this. <laughs> I don't think that's quite a good way to describe him, but Yeah, maybe that's slightly sure. unfair. I, I think I also... Thought that partly because of the way he looks, and he's all, and in the one other thing I've seen of him in it, he's quite gruff and, but like with a heart of gold underneath, which is sort of, you know, Humphrey Bogart's shtick in a lot of the things he was in. True. So that was my connection with that. You really like this film, right? I maybe. The last two movies that we've done on this podcast that I've seen, it's been like, my memory of it has been, wow, this is really great. I really like this. And then we watch it again. It's like, 20-year-old me had bad taste. <laughs> well, not not one of them. Um, the, the first one that we did, um, Window to Paris, I still really like. Okay. It's mad, but I like it. Um, the other one. Irony um, of Fate. Yeah, irony of fate. It's like my, I just, I had bad judgment in what was expected of people and what made somebody good. Like, and I just completely forgot huge parts of the movie that were major plot points and major characters. Yeah. And it, it was a completely different movie the second time I saw it. Yeah, I remember you referring to the hero in that as trash. <laughs> yes. Just because of the way he treats Everyone. Yeah, yeah. But especially the women in his life. Well, you mainly see him interacting with the women in his life, with his mom, his fiance, who he jilts, and the new girl. Yeah, who he's just way, way, way too forward with, considering mm -hmm. he just randomly turned up. You know, plot spoiler for Irony of Fate, drunkenly in her house, but that's kind of the premise, so it's not really a spoiler. But anyway... Right, so a certain amount of trepidation that you'll still like it. Yeah, I'm hoping that I'll still like it. Well, it is critically acclaimed still, and it won the Palme d'Or at Cannes at the time, so, you know, plenty of people think it's good, so it, it's right. not just, like, 20 year old me has bad judgement. Yeah, not exclusively that, anyway. Mm -hmm. Alright, so we should probably watch the movie. And uh, have dinner. Yes, Actually, that's um, just like serendipitously, we're having Georgian food uh, this evening. And I was, I was doing my last minute bit of writing some notes about the director. It turns out that the director, Mikhail Kalatozov, 
he wasn't born Kalatorzov. I've got to write down his birth name, but he was from Georgia, so um, I hadn't realised that. So that's an interesting detail. And a nice link to the fact that we're having Georgian food for dinner. Yes. Which, if you ever get a chance to try Georgian food, by all means, do so. Like, order hachipori, order lobio, order a bunch of the other hors d'oeuvres and, like, picky things for the table. Focus on that. And, yeah, and some wine. Yeah, red dwarf. Red, red dwarf. Red Georgian wine <laughs> is is particularly nice. Yes. So that is what I call added value. That's why we have you on. Exactly. Culinary recommendations and Mm -hmm. expert. Well, my culinary recommendations are better than my movie ones, apparently. I never said that. But yeah, it is a fairly common discovery for, I guess, Westerners going to Moscow. You discover that Georgian food is awesome. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, why has this not made it? This out as far west as we live, probably for geopolitical reasons. But anyway, right, we were going to watch the film. Yes. Now, Andy, Andy Jordan Food. Now, what do we normally say at this point, Carrie? I'm hungry. <laughs> You're not playing ball. You've been on this podcast multiple times. We say "payechali." Right. Why do we say that? Uh, Yuri Gagarin said that before liftoff. Yeah, it basically means off we go. So it's a bit prosaic, but it has to Or, right, let's go. Yeah, we're off. Yep. Okay, cool. So, three, two, one. Payechali! just watched The Cranes Are Flying, and before we talk about what we thought of the film, over to you, Carrie, for a quick summary of the plot. So, before you get into it, potential spoiler warning, if you don't want to know important details of what happened, this is the time to pause the podcast, go find the film, go watch the film, and then come back to us. All right, over to you. Two main characters are Veronika and Boris, and they're dating, and they get engaged. Um, and then World War II starts, or Russia, uh, <laughs> rather. Excuse me. Russia, or Soviet Union, even saying Russia at this point is, is wrong. So the Soviet Union enters the war, and uh, starts fighting, and then... Some of us had been in the war for pretty much two years at that point. Well, Russia was in the war for two years at that point as well. It's just they just, were fighting with the Nazis as opposed and the same side as opposed to fighting the Nazis. But this is a major <laughs> tangent, yeah, yeah, and yeah. you're going to get angry letters. Yes. Don't anyway, <laughs> stop interrupting my summary. Right, where was I? Um, so Veronika and Boris 
and dating and then war and Boris volunteers. So he gets sent off to war. They're set on sent off to the front. Of course, Veronika stays home and they Before we go any further, where's home? Moscow. Yeah, that's a good point. Veronika, of course, stays home, and Boris's family, Veronika, no one hears from Boris for a long time. He's not writing any letters. Then, during one of the bombardments or air raids, Veronika goes down into the subway where the air raid shelter was, but her parents stay up in their apartment. They die. Um, Veronika moves in with Boris's family, and then... I, well, I left this detail out. Boris's cousin, Mark, lives with the family as well. Mark has a thing with Veronica. So uh, during another air raid, Veronica refuses to go down into the air shelter, or into the subway. And it's heavily, heavily, heavily implied that Mark rapes Veronica. Then they get married. Veronica is not happy about this. No one in, in um, Boris's family is happy about this either. Um, and then it kind of follows them through the rest of the war and what happens with Veronica, her relationships with Boris's family, her relationship with Mark, etc. Until we get to the end of the movie um, and to the end of the war. Yeah. Yeah, the only one detail I'd add is that shortly after the second air raid that's depicted, the family with Veronika and Mark are evacuated from Moscow to a, to another city. Uh, yeah, a city in Siberia somewhere. Yeah. The other important detail that I left out is they do go occasionally to the front to show what's going with buddies trudging through mud and water and whatnot. And at one point you see him get shot. They don't show anything about what happens to him after he gets shot. You just really, you see him get shot. And then they cut back to Moscow or Siberia or wherever. I don't remember exactly where they were at the time. No, I can't remember the name of the city. Um, But yeah, that's that's what happens with Boris's storyline. Yeah, you don't find out until the very end. And we think it would probably be wrong to tell you. Yeah, it'd be very wrong to spoil it. Completely. Cool. We just spoiled it mostly. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you for that summary, Carrie. So the big question, I think, is before the break, we talked about how this was a film you hadn't seen for a long time and you were a little apprehensive because of the irony of fate incident. <laughs> this one held up. This one was a really good movie and I still thought it was a really good movie after watching it this time. Like, I remembered Mark being a complete and total so-and-so. He was still a complete and total so-and-so. I remembered really sympathizing with everything that goes on with Veronica and the choices that she makes, and she's between a rock and a hard place with everything that she does, and you still feel for her with everything that she goes through. Yeah, it's beautifully shot, yeah, it's just a good movie. Yeah, totally agree. I'm. I wish I'd seen this sooner, but yeah, I'm. I'm glad because I'd put off watching it for such a long time because I wanted to do it uh, for the podcast, and I 
well, specifically to watch it with you because you said how good it was, I was really glad that it wasn't a case of, oh, I've hyped this up for ages and it doesn't quite live up. Mm, um, mm-hmm. I thought it was, like you say, really, really impressive acting and really impressive direction, I thought. Just cool choices with camera angles and things. He does a lot of um, either low camera angles or he positions the camera not in the room where the action's happening, but it's kind of outside the room looking through a doorway. Or he'll set up, say, outdoor shots in such a way that just the composition of the scene is really interesting um, with where the characters are or the actors are within Moscow and how they're filmed walking down the street. It's not the standard walk down the streets mid shots. It'll be like this high overhead type shot. And it's just, it's really an an interesting way of shooting things that you see on movies all the, and on the screen all the time. Yeah. It's not just like, you know, shot, reverse shot, you know, Mm -hmm. straight on. Interesting choices are made. And also, I thought very purposeful repetition of either details or even specific shots. Like you talked about the one high angle, like the film has like almost, it's a pre-credit sequence. It's very short where Mm -hmm. you see Veronique and Baris running along the the riverbank and then you see them talking and it's a high angle and from quite some, some distance. And then like this street, cleaning machine comes past and they get covered in water and it's kind of a funny moment but maybe like 10-15 minutes later on in the film uh, when war has already broken out you see Veronica in that same place from a from the same angle but this time you have all these tank traps kind of going along along the road because now it's it's wartime yeah that was one of the things that I noticed with that with the way he shot the streets and the tank traps and the characters within it and the contrast between things. This is one of the Mm. movies that would not be, would not benefit if it were colorized Mm. because as you're watching it, he makes definitely makes sure to have that black and white or dark gray, light gray, whatever it is, that contrast is fully there and he makes use of it to direct your eye or to have a character stand out against their background or elements of the background against other elements. So if you colorized it, it would give you a completely different feel and the the composition of the shots would not hold up. Mm, Um, mm. So this is a movie that has to stay in black and white, I think. Yeah, and it looks looks absolutely beautiful, like pristine. Mm -hmm. Some really impressive crowd scenes as well. You have... At the point where Baris is going off to the front, Veronica is rushing to try and catch him before he goes, and he's actually trying to find her before he has to like, get in formation, but ultimately he runs out of time. But yeah, you just follow her through the crowd, and she's kind of pushing her way through and trying to reach him. And it's just incredibly well done. And it's almost like shaky cam. I mean, not quite, but I don't know how they would have pulled it off technically with those massive cameras that they had back then but it just looks really fantastic you kind of think how does this how do they physically do this yeah yeah with trying to pull you into what would have been the chaotic like where is he i can't see him jumping around and how difficult it would have been for them at the time and cutting back and forth between different characters and different types of people saying goodbye and everything like that 
Yeah. It's very good. And just the way the camera moves and also the expressions on her face, it just conveys an awful lot of the... Well, it conveys how she's feeling without, you know, someone spelling it out by saying <laughs> by saying anything. Yeah, because there's not really any dialogue at all during that um, time from the main characters. Yeah. I mean, Veronica at one point does see Boris and then yells Boris, Boris several times. Um, but yeah, other than that, there's no dialogue, but you can tell how both of those characters are based off of the close-ups on their faces. Yeah. I mean, this isn't kind of like a Tarkovsky quite minimal dialogue. And, you know, when there is dialogue, it's really dense. This is, this is more like it's just quite sparingly used and it's not used to particularly spell things out. I think it's mainly there are certain scenes where it's like it, that one that you can't have a conversation in the midst of a massive crowd like that. And so yeah. he doesn't try and do that and like make it forced. Hmm. Um, but yeah, there are other parts where the dialogue is incredibly important and it's just normal conversation between people. Um, it's just that one scene he's chosen to s- tell the story in such a way that it's, um, yeah, through the, the actor's faces. Yeah. I, I really like the performances. I mean, I'd seen, as I mentioned, Alexei Batalov in one film before, but I'd never seen uh, Tatiana uh, Samoylova. I thought she was <laughs> incredibly good. Yeah, she was very good. You had an interesting little detail that you mentioned. Oh, yeah, the the one this one detail that we learned in class was that Professor mentioned at one point was that she wasn't considered pretty enough to do serious acting. Like, she could do comedy but not, like, drama and stuff. And it's like, she's not pretty enough? Who on earth could potentially be pretty enough if she's not pretty enough? Like, Yeah. <laughs> who, who, uh, who is she being measured against and being found wanting? Yeah, really. I, I feel slightly awkward saying this at all, and especially in your presence, but yeah, uh, she's absolutely stunning. Yeah, uh, she is. Um, but it's, it, it's a great performance as, uh, mm-hmm. as well from her she's clearly a talented actress you can see why she would be cast in that role yeah i'd read somewhere i think i, I hope i've got this right that she went on to play anna karena in a like i think it was a mid to late-ish 60s adaptation so i definitely want to see that now based on how good she mm. is in this well she's pretty enough to be anna karenina <laughs> yes well um how did you find the relationship between the two of them before he goes off to war. Paris and Veronica? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, well, it clearly has an element of playful, well, strong element of playfulness to it. Like, Veronica does a lot of growing up. At, well, not, she doesn't grow up. It's more like she gets way more serious after he goes to war. Because it's, the conversations between them are just silly and playful. And she, at one point she demands that he calls her by her nickname, which is Bielka or Squirrel. She doesn't even want buddies to call her Veronica. It's, no, 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 I'm Squirrel. Uh, and she she does have a bit of that to her, you know, kind of playful, darting back and forth and uh, yeah. not serious. And Yeah, there's, th- there's this funny bit where, again, it's very early on, where I think he's messing with a curtain so or something. Mm. He's standing on a... He's standing He's on a... trying to put up a blanket as a blackout curtain. Oh, yeah, that makes more sense. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Important detail. So war has just, just been declared then, or broken out with the 
Soviet Union. Anyway. anyway. Um, yeah, and they're having this sort of playful argument, and she, like, she literally just, like, headbutts him in the butt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just, it's just really silly. I mean, not hard enough to knock him off the chair, obviously, but it is just, like, a playful, like... Bumping mm-hmm. into him, and it, mm-hmm. yeah, that was kind of funny. Yeah, I mean, and they they make it completely obvious that those two are in love, and you know, wanting to spend all their time together, and um, staying out until all odd hours of the morning, walking around and just enjoying one another's presence. And they do talk about getting married, so they're you know, she says, "I already have my wedding dress," sort of a thing. So that was the stage of their relationship when he he went off to war. Yeah, and they're, they're really they're really cute together, which makes you know seeing them apart very sad. And it's and it's it's incredible how because it's a short film; it's like ninety minutes or just slightly more. Mm-hmm. How quickly they establish that these two love each other; they're great together. You know, if it wasn't for this war, they'd have a really happy future together it's it, it's again it's really very sort of economical storytelling and just just well written well acted mm-hmm. all that stuff tiny little detail that i wanted to mention it's kind of difficult not to this isn't just shoehorning this in but there's one little bit where she's expecting a letter from baris at some point because uh, she hasn't heard from him and she does this thing where she says, if I count to 50 before the person comes in the door, I'll have a letter from him. And um, the reason I noticed this and this stood out uh, was that the two of us, we, um, well, in my case, rewatched a very long engagement with Audrey Tattoo that couple of months back. And there's, in that film, something very like that happens multiple times. It only happens the one time in this. But it seems like it was so close what she does and what Audrey Tattoo's character does in that, that you feel like uh, the director of A Very Long Engagement must have seen this film. Or there's something with that convention that maybe was more popular back then, or, or more popular that widely known or done than we know of. Yeah, yeah, sort of little superstition. or mm-hmm. Yeah, possibly. But it, it seemed like there's a good chance that it's a reference to that. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Oh, there was one thing I wanted to pick up with you. You said before we started there was one incident that was very not the way, like, the Soviet... Oh, yeah. So basically, if you were engaged to a soldier that went off to war and he died, that, you know, you couldn't get into a relationship with somebody else. It's like you were that dead soldier's bride for forever. And you shouldn't get remarried, and that even if he was dead, that'd be like betraying him if you got married to somebody else. So the fact that Veronica marries Mark, even you know Mark, even though Mark raped her, and it's just Veronica was in her, her parents are dead, and she's in this horrible spot. Like that was horrible of according to the Soviet ideal. That was mm. horrible of Veronica to do that, and how could she? And she's just this terrible, awful person. So then the fact that the heroine of the movie was shown to do that uh, would have been a bit subversive for mm. a Soviet movie, and I don't think it would have flown before the uh, secret speech and the, the thaw. Yeah, because she's, in spite of this, she's 
just from the way it's shot and the way you see her and the way the character's portrayed, you're still meant to be massively sympathetic with her. Mm-hmm. I thought that was probably what you were referring to. Mm-hmm. And then you feel really, really bad for, uh, for her. She volunteers, or maybe not volunteers, but she's drafted into medical service, as is. Or that's just her job. Like yeah. She, they yeah. Ca- keep calling her a nurse, but she's not really a nurse. It's more like trying to take care of the guys while they're in crammed into the, the dormitory, mm. um, recovering, and she's doing things like helping the guys write letters and turning up or turning down the music and that sort of a thing. But yeah, that's her job whilst they're in Siberia. Yeah. But one of the patients who's been fairly badly wounded, but it comes out that his, uh, I think his fiance ran away or married another, another guy while he was at the front. And so he, he basically just completely loses it, starts screaming that he just wants to die and causes a massive disturbance. And then Fjorder, who is Barisa's father, who is important doctor at the hospital, comes over to this soldier who's screaming and basically balls him out for being so upset about this because a woman like that who does that isn't worth being upset about because you're a war hero and she's just trash. And this yeah, is... it's basically like like she did the worst thing possible and it's unforgivable and how horrible is it that she could have done something like this to you? And it's right in front of Veronica. Mm-hmm. And you can see just how upset. Well, she basically goes out and tries to commit suicide. Yeah. I mean, she doesn't. Yeah. Because she does live to the end of the movie. Spoiler alert, yeah. But you don't get the impression that Fyodor is doing that to make her feel bad. No, you get, Fyodor is definitely sympathetic to her throughout the entire movie. Yeah. No one likes Mark. No one likes Mark, no. Which no one should, because he's... A so-and-so. He's a terrible, terrible person. Mm-hmm. I also kind of liked, um, this is another note, the costuming... That mm. they chose because everybody basically wears the same thing. I mean, Boris, of course, when he, you know he has his civilian clothes, and then when he joins the army, he's in his army uniform, right? But everybody else, you basically see them in the same clothes throughout the movie. You know, maybe with or without their winter coats, mm. based off of the season changes or the changes in season. But Veronica, you see her change clothes quite a bit Mm. and change colors that she's wearing. Like, after her parents die, she wears only black until the very end of the movie. Oh, yeah. And then, and during that time, like, she's just wearing black. Whereas before, she wears several different dresses. And at one point, while they're in Siberia, you even see her root through her suitcase with her clothes. And she has other colored clothes, but she's only wearing that black turtleneck and skirt. Hmm. And that's all she wears, except when she's working in the hospital yeah. and she has to wear her hospital uniform. Um, and and that I think it, it does show a bit of a, a transition between different parts of her life hmm. and different attitudes that she has towards things. Um, and I'm not going to tell you what color she wears at the end. Right. Um, it's giving some things away a bit, but I think there's some symbolism in that and with her costuming choices. Okay. Yeah, I hadn't. 
I I think I'd noticed the black, but I hadn't been paying as close attention to what she was wearing before. So it was just various dresses um, mm. that were like light gray. Well, they were light gray because it's a film. Because it's <laughs> yeah. black and white. I'm like, I know they have different co- different colors read in different ways, and I have no idea what it was meant to read as. But mm. it, it was definitely a lighter dress or dresses, and there's definitely like heavy heavy symbolism in what she wears at the end and i'm trying not to give it away but it it reminds you of excuse me something else (laughs) ali's like i don't remember what she was wearing i didn't pay attention yeah no well i was just trying to follow everything that's happened because it's they pack a lot in they do they do did you have anything else you wanted to say um it is very interesting that they that you have a war movie that's not focused on the drama and the action of the fighting and it's focused on what happens on the home front and it's still interesting mm. and you see the pain of what other people were going through and how they were crammed in while they evacuated and there's one little 3-year-old boy who gets separated from his family and uh, how things just weren't they weren't a walk in the park just because you weren't on the front. I don't want to diminish the thing, the the pain and the awful that the guys on the front went through, because yes, that was even worse. But yeah, it makes it, you know, with the air raids and people dying and evacuating and having to work and, and treatment and the, the stuff that they were going through, it was not picnic for those who were left behind. Well, of course, and, and, and the, the fact that you don't know what's happening to your loved ones at the front mm. and it's very hard to hear from them and you can go months even years potentially and just not know what's happened to them yeah the whole waiting for the letters thing waiting for the letters keeps on getting repeated and other characters have that too like when, at the one point when the mailman or mail lady um arrives and like everybody's so relieved when they get a letter yeah. Or so happy when they finally get something, or so upset when nothing's there for them. So yeah, and it's probably worth explicitly saying it's really cool that a film from 1957 focused so much on on a female character. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of it was to do with her relationship with a man. So I don't know whether it would pass the Bechdel test. I don't think it would. I don't think that two named... No! The Veronica and the teacher, when they're, they're talking about what is the meaning of life. Briefly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then Mark interrupts the conversation. But you And you do also have, we think, Paris's sister, who is a very, very high-achieving doctor. But at the same time, they make fun of her and mock her and whatnot throughout the whole movie for not having a guy and not being in a relationship and you're just a mm. spinster. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. She literally uses the the Russian phrase staraya dieva, I think, which literally means like old maid or old virgin. Yeah. <laughs> On the other hand, there there is a bit where Fyodor says, you know, oh, you should have you should have been a man and she just retorts instantly, like, I'm fine as a woman. Yeah. I mean, you don't feel like she's clearly that Irina, the sister, clearly has a will of iron, but you don't, she's not like a bad character in the movie. But she's not 
really a central enough character that it's easy to form like a mm-hmm. strong opinion about her. I mean, she's she's quite fierce when you do. I think see she's her. kind of like how the Soviet Union ideal is for how you react to different situations. Yeah, kind of stoic. But yeah, very stoic. So it's like her reactions are how you're supposed to react to things. Yeah. And Veronika does not react to things and does not act in the same way that Irina acts. And and you don't get to see Irina with any of her friends, I guess. Really. No, it's kind of like she's a foil to Veronika. Yeah. All right. I feel that's probably about as much as I can think of to say about this film without just totally spoiling it. Just go watch it. It's really good. <laughs> yes, it is very good. So thank you very much, Carrie, for being a guest once again. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's been fun. All right, folks, that's it for today. Dasvidaniya. Dasvidaniya. So that's it for this episode, but before I go, I'd like to thank Sasha Ilukovic and the Highly Skilled Migrants for the use of their song Cold in our intro. You can find that song and the rest of their back catalogue on Bandcamp and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting us by leaving a rating at Apple Podcasts or at podchaser.com. That second one, Podchaser, even lets you rate individual episodes, so if this episode particularly stood out to you, you can let other listeners know that you enjoyed it. Recommending the show on social media is hugely helpful as well. If you can spare a moment or two to do that, it would really make my day. Thank you, thank you very much. Speaking of social media, please find us and say hi on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. You can also drop us a line at roosfilesunite at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, take care of yourselves, and bye for now.